Today on this episode of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. Does cannabis in any form have any potential opioid sparing effects? Today, we rejoin my conversation with Dr. Dan Burlow from Regis University as he discusses cannabis for pain and the impact of statins on dementia in the second half of this two-part episode of the PV Roundup Specialist Spotlight. Want to be featured on the podcast? Tell us the story of how you chose your career path to medicine. I've been asking this question to our guests in the Specialist Spotlight series, and folks really seem to enjoy hearing how others got their start. So now it's your turn, and we want to hear from you. Tell us your story in up to four minutes and include your name, degree, specialty, practice setting, and location, and your journey to medicine story. You can submit an audio recording of your story or send it to us in a text format, and we'll read it for you. Email us at editorial at pvroundup.com for the chance to have your story heard on a future episode. I'm your host, Senior VP Medical Director, Dr. Tim Wright, and rejoining me on the podcast today is Dr. Dan Burlow. He is a professor in the School of Pharmacy at Regis University in Denver, Colorado. Let's rejoin my conversation with Dr. Burlow. So if you don't mind, I'd love to switch gears because before we started recording, you told me, well, actually, when we started recording, you told me you did some work in cannabis and something very interesting just came up, I think a week or two ago. They showed that CBD didn't have any real effect or any palliative effect in some folks who were in hospice. Um, I don't know if you read that paper or not. And yeah. Can you sort of comment about what, where you see cannabis going? Yeah. So um, the paper I wrote was basically, and this has been sort of, big since probably 2010, where anything we can use to reduce opioid usage in patients with pain syndromes is, is critical. And so um, at that point, you don't really care too much if it's placebo or not. If you can reduce opioid usage, that's a win. And um, there's been a, a lot of studies at, a, at even a sort of individual level versus a community level showing that areas that have more access to cannabis oftentimes have reduced opioid overdoses and reduced opioid usage. And even They've done studies where they'll put people in that, um, they'll dip their arm in ice water and they'll find out that they can tolerate more pain with fewer opioids uh, if they have some cannabis on board. So that's sort of one half of the story. The other half of the story is the overwhelming skepticism for all of the claims that have been made for cannabis and CBD in the last 10 years, because um, I've seen papers, uh, usually lay papers that, you know, there's evidence for it, for depression, anxiety, for pain, for pretty much anything you could possibly imagine. And uh, I think that the huge caveats that all physicians and healthcare providers have to deal with is that uh, we don't have a regulated dose. We don't have a regulated formulation. We don't have a regulated product. Cannabis products are different. And so you might say cannabis works, but the next question would have to be, well, how, what was the route? What was the dose? What was the product? Um, you know, what was the, um, in terms of timing, and none of that's been established. And so um, even with the FDA-approved medication, um, CBD medication for uh, um, seizures, which there's a lot of evidence to suggest that perhaps it is uh, uh, interacting with SIP enzymes in your liver just to prolong the effects of existing anti-seizure meds. I mean, you know, I'm of an age, and again, I, I, I fully, I make no claims that I didn't train a long time ago, where a drug called Marinol came out. Yeah. And everyone was very excited about it, and it was not that big of a deal. It was sort of like, oh, we didn't do a very good job of this. And then the other point I want to make is, is that toxicity. 
there's no way the FDA is going to approve an inhaled uh, medication that you have to burn and there's carcinogens with it. So, yeah, those are both good points. Marinol, uh, I believe, is approved for um, cancer emesis. Uh, it helps people keep their hunger and uh, it is, I think, has limited utility even now. Um, but again, so much of that depends on the route, right? So Marinol is a pill and there's a bunch of evidence to suggest that cannabis uh, really has pretty low oral bioavailability and this probably isn't the best route to use for cannabis. And then what you were mentioning before is, um, you know, any sort of medication that involves you burning a plant and inhaling it is probably not going to be approved. Luckily, I mean, based, I live in Colorado, right? Since 2014, cannabis has been legal and there are you know, 50 different formulations you can take, whether it's a, a lotion or a tincture or you vape, you know, and, and there's, so there's options to get it sort of into your bloodstream quickly. Um, and so I don't think that's a limiting factor anymore. But I mean, I think really, and again, I don't want to get too political, but really the reason why we don't have more studies on this is because it's still a schedule one substance. Uh, and so research on it is severely limited. Yeah, no, it's okay. We, you know, when we're dealing with medical issues here, politics, you know, sort of steps aside, but that obviously the reason we've had, you know, um, several people on here talking about access to reproductive health and to, you know, and trying to stop gun violence. So I have no problem with that at all. The other, the other, it may have been off-label indication, but during the, when I went through my medical training during the HIV crisis and folks were also, you know, having wasting syndrome there. So they were trying to use Marinol to help that. And I think what eventually happened is, is that patients were like, yeah, no, I can get stuff that I can smoke that's better than this. Yeah, yeah, 100%. And that's, and that's what patients still say, right? The, the one thing that's changed probably since the 80s and 90s is that cannabis strength has gotten exponentially larger. And so uh, the risks associated with cannabis use 20 or 30 years ago were pretty minimal. Um, you know, I remember a saying back when I was, you know, a, a long time ago that the lethal dose of cannabis is 25 pounds dropped on your head from a 10-story building because there weren't any really issues associated with cannabis use, primarily because the cannabis was relatively low in THC and people naturally self-titrate. You can't keep smoking if you are impaired. So um, that's changed a little bit since THC contents have increased tenfold. And so now there's, you know, a much more higher incidence of hyperemesis syndrome, as well as um, there are people who get sort of schizophrenia-like symptoms with chronic use. And so it's not quite as safe as I think we assumed it would be. But again, that's why we need more research. Absolutely. I had a very interesting uh, pharmacology professor who, when we were talking about LD50s, and he said, you know, alcohol would never get approved by the FDA today. And I think that at that point, you know, I don't think that, to your point, cannabis was, you know, in the conversation. But now, you know, you hear from people, you know, and in, a, in the lay culture, but also in the medical culture, that there are people coming in. I have friends who are still in practice, and there are people who are coming in who have you know, taking a bunch of gummies or whatever, and have just sort of almost catatonic in some situations. Yeah. Oral formulations are really tough for a variety of reasons. Primarily that sort of self-titration thing, right? If you're smoking and you are good, you don't need any more medication, then you stop. But with these oral formulations, they can slowly release over the course of digestion. And uh, you, you can, you know, 24, 36 hours, you can still be having symptoms because, you know, once you take it, it's in there. Yeah, you overshoot the mark. Yeah. And, and um, I re recall you had a third topic that got you interested in uh, pharmacology or, um, pardon me, in neuroscience. Yeah, so so the third, well, so my third topic that I've written a paper on is basically statins and dementia. Right. And uh, 
I mean, this is which I, I'm going to jump in here. Sure. You know, I worked on one of the very first statins in medical publishing when it was actually the last one, Crestor, was going out. Okay. And one of the primary authors of the paper is like, this is so good. We need to put it in the water. Yeah. Um, so, and, you know, looking at the average American diet that, you know, at the time, with all the benefits of stabilizing the plaques and the arteries and reducing cholesterol and all this other stuff didn't seem like a bad idea. But now I'm interested in hearing your aspect. Well, well, yeah. So, so, I mean, the interesting thing is that there is evidence that long-term statin use is associated with lower risk of dementia. And that's adjusting for socioeconomic status and a variety of factors that obviously are important. Um, the, the sort of the crux of the paper, which I thought was kind of interesting, is that there's a subset of population uh, it's and it's a small percentage, but since you know millions and millions of people are on statins, this is not a small number of people who, when they take a statin, they get almost like a delirium type dementia, where you know a day or two after the, they start taking the medication, they they basically have delirium, and once the statin is removed, the delirium goes away, and they are non tolerators of statins, and uh, it's basically a completely separate mechanism by how it works, and. Don't quiz me on what the mechanism mechanism is because it's been a while since I wrote the paper. But um, but basically, uh, so so statins can both cause sort of a temporary dementia delirium, but also, I mean, in very large studies, might, I mean, if you're talking about what kind of what medications do we have the most data on, probably statins is one of the top five, right? Because we have millions and millions of people, and um, and so uh, it basically there is evidence. Um, it it also may depend on which statin. Uh, certain statins are more lipophilic than others, and the more lipophilic ones are more likely to cross the blood-brain barrier and more likely to, you know, interfere with dementia processes in the brain. But um, yeah, certainly, I mean, I I don't know about putting in the water, right. but uh, I take a statin, and I'm I'm you know I'm hoping that it helps me both in the heart and the head. Yeah, my my question would be, and again, this is you're coming at it from neuroscience. I'm coming at it as an old ER doc and thinking of blood vessels, and I'm thinking, is it re- simply reducing the plaques? not only in the coronary arteries, but also in the cerebral arteries. Um, that would have been my first take. But again, you know, I'm always thinking of the plumbing, maybe not the wiring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sort of like like microvessel occlusion. You're right, exactly. Um, and I mean, that's certainly a possibility. Um, there is evidence that the lipophilic statins can affect neurons and synapses directly. Um, so it could be a combination of both. Um, certainly the the dementia that they're talking about is is most likely slow onset dementia, which we used to think was non-vascular. But now it's clear that there's um, uh, lots of people who get sort of slow insidious onset dementia, that there are microinfarcts and a variety of sort of small vessel occlusions that can build up over time, which can lead to hypoxia and brain damage. So um, that's certainly possible. Uh, I wouldn't right. rule it out. I mean, that was the old, the old way of determining the two different when I was in training. It says the stair step one was you know, a CVA event, then a, then a person would level yeah. off and then they would have another event and so forth. Very interesting stuff. And, and for my final question, I usually wrap up with something that's not quite as heavy as that. It's not lost on me and some folks who have listened to this podcast um, that you work at a Jesuit institution of higher learning. Mm-hmm. I am a graduate of a Jesuit institution of higher learning here on the East Coast, the, the College of the Holy Cross. I want to just sort of briefly get your take. My take was, and I don't know how many... Jesuit professors there still are. I mean, the Jesuits order shrinking a little bit, but that the sort of intellectual honesty and the pursuit of truth is really something that you can talk about when you go to a Jesuit institution. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, so uh, I'm not a religious person, and uh, I really enjoy working here. I mean, the the Jesuit values are things like helping people who need help, serving the underserved, um, you know, caring for people. And so these are relatively universal values. Um, certainly, Regis, so Regis is going through a transition. We have always had a Jesuit president, uh, but we are getting a new president probably the next couple months. And as you mentioned, there's not many Jesuits left. And so we'll probably have a lay president, I'm guessing. And, uh, you know, I mean, the one thing I will say is that we are, this is a Jesuit Catholic school uh, in Denver, Colorado. And I'm in the pharmacy school and I'm teaching contraception. I'm teaching IUDs. I'm teaching about abortifacient agents. Uh, and I haven't been, you know, the 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 um, mission president hasn't come down on me yet. Um, and I think the idea is that it is. It's it's we are looking for the truth in the world. And, uh, you know, it's it's fun to be a part of that. Yeah. And I mean, it's sort of the same at Holy Cross. I'm supposed to say the College of the Holy Cross, but we short term it for Holy Cross is we actually got our first lay president, I think, last year or so forth. And it's also I, I think that, you know, those of us who are alumni of Holy Cross are also very proud uh, of Dr. Anthony Fauci as well for his pursuit of the truth. So this has been a really great conversation, Dr. Barlow. I'd like to thank you. Thank you so much for the time. And it's been a great conversation for me as well. And that's part two of this two-part episode of The Specialist Spotlight. Thank you for joining. For more stories like these, visit us at pvroundup.com to subscribe to our weekly newsletters. Thoughts, comments, or suggestions? Please leave us a review on your preferred listening platform or email us at editorial at pvroundup.com. Subscribe to our podcast on Spotify, Pandora, Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, or Google. You can also download our Amazon Alexa Flash Briefing Medical News Roundup and just ask, what's my Flash Briefing? Thanks today to our guests, Dr. Dan Burlow, and to Sean Mullen, Kate Rio, and Jackie Gallant for production assistance. Join me next time for an episode where we cover the latest stories in the world of medicine. <laughs>